So before we start this episode, I just wanted to let you know about the retreat I'm going to teach very shortly, well in October, at Purple Valley Yoga in Goa, alongside my very special guest, Edwin Bryant. So it's a two weeks retreat, both weeks there'll be a Mysore class in the morning, every morning, and the first week I'll be there teaching asana workshops in the afternoons, the second week Edwin will take the reins for his knowledge and philosophy, including going through his well-known book on the yoga sutras in person. Further than that, Purple Valley Yoga Goa is generally great. A lovely shala, great food, wonderful staff, and set on a beautiful grounds with a pool. So I'm sure you're going to have a great time. See www.keyonyoga for uh, details or go to yogagoa.com as well. I hope to see you there. This episode of the Keen on Yoga podcast is sponsored by Moments, the system we use and highly recommend to take bookings for classes, workshops, courses, retreats, and appointments, either in person, online, or hybrid. We also use Moments for our memberships and on-demand video library. It lets us take payments by Stripe, PayPal, bank transfer, or cash, and manage deposits and payment plans. If you have a studio, you can run your teacher payroll through Moments, and the robust reporting frees you up to focus on the more creative side of things. Moments is super easy for you and your customers to use, and best of all, if you get stuck, they have live support by chat, phone, and email. We've partnered with Moments to offer you a free two-month trial. For more information, click on the link in the description below or visit keenonyoga.com forward slash moments to book a demo and quote Keen on Yoga. And now on to the episode. So finally, after almost probably a couple of years of hunting him down, I finally got to speak to Danny Paradise. So I'm so happy to have you on the show, Danny. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. I'm sorry it took a while. <laughs> I know you've got a busy schedule. So well, I was remembering uh, messaging you when I was in France a couple of years ago. And you were like, oh, yeah, let's, let's get together when I am come back from this travel or that travel. And then, you know, but we're here now. Yeah. And uh, yeah. It's so cool to see you. Uh, Thank where are you. you. Where are you speaking? Where are you speaking from? I'm in Hawaii, right. uh, in a remote place, uh, in the in the forest. And that's where you have your house. I do. Yeah, this yeah. is where I live. Which island is it? Uh, I'm not going to say. <laughs> Just in case people track you down. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of proud. I knew that Hawaii was different islands now, you know, because up until about a year or two ago, since speaking to kind of people like David Williams, I thought Hawaii meant one was one was one uh, landmass and was, yeah. wasn't separate into different islands. Well, so I don't want. That, I, yeah. I don't want the authorities to find me. Oh, that's fair enough as well. Yeah, yeah. Good call on that. Um, <laughs> that's why we keep moving. <laughs> that's right. You yeah, can't yeah. keep up with me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, you know, <laughs> on, uh, along those lines, you know, I, I know that the, the scene that you were involved in in the early days in Maui is very renegade, very, um, you know, kind of um, alternative. And I was always so intrigued about this scene in Maui that, you know, originally took off around David Williams and, and yourself and uh, Old Cliff Barber. Um, uh-huh. Can you just speak a little bit about how you got into Ashtanga at the start and what you were doing in Hawaii, like how you arrived there? Like just, you know, in the early days, everyone wants to hear about that. Sorry to ask you again. No problem. Uh, yeah, I came initially because my brother had moved to Honolulu and then I came to visit him a few times and then I ended up uh, just uh, continuing to visit and I 
I stayed in Honolulu for or in Hawaii, on that island for a while, Oahu. And then a friend told me about Maui, and uh, a friend that I'd met in Europe, and um, when I traveled a couple of years before, and so I went to Maui and uh, I started playing music. I was playing music on Oahu for a while, and then I was playing music. I moved to Maui because it was it was undeveloped. Uh, there was only five hotels, few tourists. This was in 1975. There was only five thousand tourists a year there. It was very pristine and beautiful. It's still pristine, but now there's three million tourists a year there, and a lot more residents. And uh, so it was a you know just it, it is a spectacular place and very beautiful. And people are very sweet there, and there was a whole youth culture kind of coming there from um, America and Europe, surfers and people avoiding the Vietnam War and. Uh, just young people getting trying to get out of industrialized cities and big cities and wanting to be in nature and uh, have organic food and clean air and you know clean uh, land and so uh, you know I, I was just lucky enough to be there for uh, a while. Um, uh, my girlfriend at the time was uh, my first season there uh, was studying yoga with Cliff who was a renunciate Cliff Barber and living in uh it basically he lived in a cave in a beautiful valley in Ukumehami, a giant river valley. And he also, when he was in Lahaina town, he slept in the graveyard, but he was always around the town and he was kind of an imposing figure. He was like six foot three and perfect posture. Uh, we thought he was very old at the time. He was like 43 and uh, he was doing teaching uh, Swami Satchidananda Integral Hatha Yoga to friends. And I met several of his friends, including my girlfriend. Um, and uh, I watched them do yoga, but I didn't try it. It looked a little, it looked too simplistic to me. You know, you don't really realize what it is until you do it. And, um, and but we became friends and I had a lot of conversations with him. He was a uh, basically a renunciate sadhu, a Western sadhu, and he was brilliant uh, mathematician and artist, and um, uh, his, his field was sacred geometry, but he was also studying Buddhist and uh, Hindu and yogic and uh, uh, Kabbalah scriptures and um, all spiritual scriptures, really, and trying to put them together and, and live a, a spiritual life. And, um, and then... Just by luck, uh, David Williams and Nancy Gilgoff had come to the Big Island and they heard about Cliff uh, on Maui uh, as an old yogi. Everybody thought he was old. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, then he, uh, they came to Maui and, and sought him out. I think David may, may have told you. And he was living, he wasn't living, but he was working. He, during the day, he was doing his art and studying and practice in an old seaman's historical prison in Lahaina. And so they found him there and told him that they wanted to give him a demonstration of the forms that they had learned and, and which they did. And then, and he was very impressed. And, um, and David asked him if he would tell his friends, they wanted to do a demonstration and start teaching. So I heard, through my girlfriend, uh, a couple of days later, there was going to be this demonstration. 
which I went to, and it was David and Nancy and a friend of theirs named Marsha Heilman doing uh, the beginning, intermediate, and advanced sequences for a group of 35 young people, and uh, mostly young. It was actually all ages, but there were a lot of young people coming to Maui in those days. And, um, and the next day, they started teaching in front of a library in Lahaina, just on the uh, harbor, in the harbor, and I joined. And uh, so that's how I started. So it was just very, it was good timing. I was in the right place at the right time. And they were fantastic and uh, lovely teachers and very, only a couple of years older than me and had obviously How old were you at the time? Uh, I was 23, 24. They mm. were a couple of years older. And um, so this was 1976, May 2nd, 1976 is when we started. And uh, I was just uh, blown away right from the beginning because uh, I had studied martial arts. I was a, a swimming teacher and instructor and had been a lifeguard. And, and uh, But nothing had impacted me so quickly as uh, the yoga practice. I, I've said before in my first salutation in the downward dog, I broke out into a sweat and that was like, 15 seconds into the practice or 20 seconds and nothing had made me sweat so quickly before. So I knew this was totally different and uh, they were very methodical and gentle and um, taught very slowly. Uh, we just did a few salutations the first day and then the three finishing poses. The next day we did five salutations. Um, the following day we started the second salutation and did a couple of those. So Every day, they would just add on a few things. Mm. But that's that slow teaching. And they, they had one requirement. They said if anybody wanted to join the class, they had to show up six days a week for a month. Even if they couldn't do it, they had to show up and just say, hey, I can't do it. I'm, I'm wrecked today right, or right, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so uh, but in that short period of time, in that first month, month and a half, uh, most everybody in that class learned the primary series. And, uh, you know, I've said that before in some interviews and people thought I was uh, making it up, but uh, I, it doesn't mean we perfected it. It just means we learned it and we could do it. It took, I'm still working on perfecting it, you know, 50 years, 47 years later or whatever. But, um, you know, we'd, we'd learn, started to learn the sequence very quickly. It just, uh, and we all became friends and started eating together and hanging out together. It was a group of uh, surfers and artists and uh, smugglers and criminals and uh, actors. And uh, nobody had anywhere to live. Everybody, most everybody was sleeping on the beach um, until, because there were just weren't places in, enough residence in Lahaina for people to live. So slowly people would find an apartment or you know, would find a spot to live. But in the beginning, pretty well everybody was living outside. How so, did people uh, pay for the classes then? I mean, they didn't well, have any money. And what were the, what were the class uh, costs at the time? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was just a donation. And if uh -huh. you didn't have anything, you could, uh, you know, people were bringing, him, bringing them uh, fruit and marijuana and <laughs> a little bit of cash. I think one or two people had money that helped cover them, but most people, you know, they were kind enough just to teach 
people for whatever they could donate, you know. So it was, uh, that's the way it was, you know, in the, in the beginning. Yeah, people weren't, weren't working. They were kind of struggling to survive. So, But they were kind enough and generous enough to pass on the practices. Mm. And you mentioned yeah. you came there playing music in the first place. And we're going to talk a little bit about Danny's music and uh, towards the end of the interview. How did you get into the music? And, and, you know, would you want to say a little bit about your background in music? Did you study professionally or did you, you just going to get into the guitar or how, how did that all come about? Oh, I started playing when I was 12, 12 years old. I, my uh-huh. father brought me a guitar and I, I just started playing. And then I, I, there was a, somebody in not too far from my home uh, who was a, a music teacher and a great musician. And I started taking lessons from him every week and I took one lesson each week and he was, uh, he was just a, an excellent teacher. And he, he taught me how to, uh, of course, how to start playing and understanding chord structures and uh, picking and finger picking techniques. But one of the most important things he taught me was how to listen to a record and figure out how to play what was you know what, what the music was by just through my in my ear mm, just mm, trying to yeah pick yeah. it up so unfortunately mm. i i had a an ability for that so um you know i was playing music since i was 12 and then i i traveled around the world when i was 19 and uh brought my guitar and played in bars and clubs and with friends all over the world so uh that's you know it was part of my my being really you know mm, part mm. Of my art and it still mm. is mm, mm. no i mean i think anyone that that knows you as an ashtanga teacher also knows you as a musician i think I mean, i've never studied with you but i always heard when you came to oxford everyone said you bought your guitar and you would play as well and right is, is that right yeah 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 sometimes i would play in classes but all more uh you know in gatherings dinners or with friends and and other music, musical friends that would show up to the classes. So, and that still yeah. goes on today. So, yeah. Well, we're, we're going to get back to the uh, the music part and how that kind of finally interweaves with the yoga and uh, surely um, because obviously okay. Danny Danny um, taught Sting and, and and that was related to the music and and so it kind of comes a full circle. But uh, before that, Danny, I'll just talk a little bit more a bit more about the Eshtanga, although I'm sure you've heard of all course. these questions a hundred times over. Um, so you, That's you know, okay. obvi- obviously you're one of the very early uh, people to practice Eshtanga, but you never really stuck in the traditional, let's call it traditional Eshtanga fold, i.e. going to Mysore and towing the, the sequence lines and, you know, studying with Joyce, etc. Patabi Joyce. Um, do you want to speak a little bit about your meetings with, uh, with Patabi Joyce and why you decided not to go that way? Well, one thing that, um, I think was, you know, very uh, important to me at the time when I learned mm. yoga was uh, in in Hawaii at those days in the mid seventies. Everybody was looking for a guru, but mm. I was very skeptical of, you know, devoting myself to a teacher. I, you know, uh, I I was meeting a lot of these gurus that were coming through Hawaii, different lineages and traditions, and hearing them speak and meeting their disciples. Uh, but I, nothing convinced me to follow any of them. I, I liked the teachings, and I recognized it was important to listen to what they had to say and try to integrate some of the things into my life. But I didn't. I was too skeptical to, to want to devote my time or energy to somebody like that. So um, when I met David and Nancy, I I immediately clicked into this because I recognized this is 
something totally unique. These are sequences that you learn. And the idea was to practice them yourself. You just spend a period of time learning the sequences. But ultimately, it was about personal authority and personal responsibility. And not mm. they didn't want to have devotees or disciples. They just wanted to pass on the teachings. And that's that drew me to to it instantly. And I'd studied martial arts in Canada. I'd learned uh, from Masami Soroko, Soroka, who was uh, the man who introduced karate in Canada. And I learned katas, and uh, yeah. those were techniques you 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 know you you pra- you I learn a technique. Arts when I was young, yeah, yeah, yeah. Katas, so you practice, yeah, 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 yeah. You yeah. learn it, and then you can do it yourself. So yeah, that's what yeah. appealed to me. And so when when I was invited to Patabi Joyce's second um, meeting in, in the United States in California when he came in 1978 to Encinitas. I wasn't interested in having a guru at the same, but I wanted to meet him mm. and study with him. And mm. uh, I like I liked him in many ways. He and he was very uh, powerful in in so many ways. He was uh, sometimes uh, just. Uh, it was obviously uh, it, it, in that that group. There was uh, over sixty people that came in California, yeah. and um, he uh, he ha- let people do their own practice. Uh, he wasn't leading the practice, so that was right. good. You could go at so your own speed in your own time. Yeah, at that time. And at he, that time, right? He, mm. Yeah, and but he was very intense in in the way he, you know, helped people into positions and. Mm. David had warned us, and he said, "You know, he, he and I, it was uh, under, I understood that if he was coming to help you, you had to you had to hold the locks very deeply, you had to breathe very deeply, and you had to relax and just let him do his thing, and then you wouldn't get injured. If you resisted, then you know you could tear a muscle, or he could push you. You know, it would, if the resistance was what would cause injury, mm. so." Um, but so people did get injured in in those mm. classes, though, because they didn't have that understanding or they were newer to the practice. I was already doing the third series when I met him, but we were told, don't do the third series, just do primary series and let him help you there. And so uh, we were just doing primary series, but I had three years of experience uh, or in, in my third year. And uh, so I, I didn't get hurt in those classes. But I also recognized he was being a little bit too intimate with uh, some of the women. And um, and then it became clearer a couple of years later in Hawaii when I came to his classes in 1980 when he was teaching on Maui. And then there was over 100 people there. And a lot of them had never done yoga before, but they heard the gurus in town right. and they showed up to the classes. And a lot of people got injured like the first day because he didn't. He didn't uh, ask you how long you'd been doing yoga or anything like that. Yeah. yeah, It was still some practice. When when did he start teaching the lead classes then? um, Well, actually in Hawaii in in 1980 was the first group class that was led of third series. And there were 17 people from all over the world. So um, uh, I was in that class. I I, I think he was leading the primary series class well calling it out uh-huh. you know on, uh-huh. on other days but uh i was in this uh, the advanced class and he was definitely uh-huh. calling the sequence 
I've got to ask because everyone's going to want to know. Who, do you remember who else was in that class? Names that people might recognise today. Uh, <laughs> well, there was um, Helena Berg uh, from Maui and Kathy Cooper, I believe, was mm-hmm. there, and uh, a girl named Jan Hossie, who still lives on Maui. Of course, David Williams and Nancy Gilgoff, a guy named Hans from Germany, um, God, Lynn. Uh, a girl named Lynn, I forget her last name, but uh, she's Lynn Hyman now, lives on Maui. Um, I, I, Cliff was in the classes. Was he there? No, Cliff might not have been there. He, he'd already moved to India. Um, I, I'd have to think about it. That that I, I, I'm not totally yeah. clear on all yeah, the yeah, group yeah. that was there. Yeah, yeah but yeah. but also he was. It was you know when I observed what he was doing in the big classes with, uh, you know, apart from the class I was in, again, he was being too intimate with uh, some of the women and, and that put me off. And so from that point on, I recognized I didn't need to study with him. I, I, I learned, I knew the sequences. I didn't need mm. to be pushed into poses because I also felt that was unnecessary um, to get deep pushes. And more often than not, it, it created injuries. So um, I just learned at that point that I didn't need to go to Mysore. And I, mm. I went to India and taught in mm. Goa with Cliff and traveled around India for years, but never studied in Mysore with Patabi Joyce. Right. Yeah. It's kind of ironic because, I mean, I'm speaking to David Williams again, who's adamantly, you know, from day one almost kind of sceptical, to say the very least, about the physical adjustments, you know, and then you're saying the same thing, you know, and funny how they've become almost synonymous with the Ashtanga teaching is just simply the adjustments, right? Um, whereas, well, know, I, days, I suppose so. Wasn't that yeah, way? Yeah, in the early yeah, days. Yeah. But, yeah. but good teachers, uh, I feel, don't do intense adjustments. They, you know, I... I and the best teachers I've encountered over the years don't touch their students other than, you know, what I do is light directional adjustments mm, or yeah. verbal, verbal cues. Mm-hmm. I never push people, but mm-hmm. I help them if they need help in backbends or handstands or things like that. But uh, I, I don't do physical adjustments. It's mm-hmm. unnecessary. All it's doing is showing you where you're going to be anyway in a, a few months down the line <laughs> yeah. if you keep practicing. <laughs> People always say, oh, Patabi Joyce was touching the men and women the same, intimately the same, but you didn't find it that way. You found it was particularly focused on the women. Uh, absolutely. Right. What a shame. Um, and so you split from from uh, the, the, that kind of Ashtanga lineage, but you kept the sequences the same, or did you men, did you have other influences around the way you teach? Because I don't, I mean, having, you know, I have to admit, I haven't studied directly with Danny, um, but I, I kind of understand that you have a, few, a fusion of, of different things with the, the way that you teach the yoga, right? Well, right from the beginning, uh, mm. in, I think I, I might have told you around 1978, we, uh, Gonga White came to Hawaii and yeah. he was doing a, a conference uh, called Masters of, on the Mountain. He'd been practicing yoga for maybe a decade at that point, but uh, Hatha Yoga and the philosophy. And uh, he wanted to learn the Ashtanga Yoga. He heard about David and, and the practices. So he, David taught him primary and second series, and uh, he asked me to show him third series. Kathy Cooper showed him fourth series. He was very flexible and strong. And that was over a period of about a, a week or two. And then, um, and then uh, I became friends with Ganga, and and when we we 
I came to visit him in California and uh, the following year. And when we practiced yoga together, he showed me a couple of different things that he did that he had fitted into the sequence, different uh, poses, uh, variations on poses, derivative ideas. And I liked them and I started doing them. And um, I stuck with the sequences pretty, uh, what's the word, religiously, I suppose, for a number of years. But then I, I realized that um, they had certain, certain days you had to modify things and you had to adapt uh, different a form of the pose, uh, especially if you because it put you could through so many changes, as you know, physical and psychological, mm. and um, and so you know the the practice had to be modified quite often. So that was my first indication that it could be changed. Uh, I don't think it's ever done exactly the same any day by anybody. Everybody has to make modifications depending on. Uh, structural changes they're going through and um, emotional changes and releases and purification. So, but then over time, uh, as I just encountered different teachers and different forms and friends, when I, once I started teaching and they would in, introduce me to some ideas in the practice and I started to add them in. And I just recognized from teachers like Dharma Mitra uh, from New York um how many endless variations there were on poses. And I started trying those. And if I like them, I add them into my practice. And, and over the years, I teach them. So I do quite an extended standing practice. And also, because of my experience in martial arts, I, also, I studied karate for a number of years, but I also studied Kung Fu in Taipei and Tai Chi in Hawaii. Um, I recognize that these some of the poses in those practices uh, directly correlate with yoga and they add to it and they're also challenging. So I add in a lot of poses Mm. and derivative routines from Tai Chi and Kung Fu now in my teaching. Mm. Mm -mm. So and uh, one other thing. Yeah. yeah, Well, let me just say one other thing. As you know, when I started teaching and traveling, uh, it was like. I taught in California in 1979 at Ganga School, the Center for Yoga. Mati Azrati was in the, my class. That was her introduction to Ashtanga Yoga. And uh, a number of other, his teachers and other uh, practitioners. Um, Tim Miller came up from Encinitas and did the practices. And uh, and then I, I started teaching, getting invitations to Europe and um, to India. Cliff invited me to Goa. And, you know, for years, uh, I, I initially taught the sequences with a few additions, a few variations. But then as the years went by and more teachers started appearing and were very dogmatic, I recognized I did not want to go that way. I didn't want to be dogmatic about the practices. I recognized that there was another direction I could take, uh, mm. more innovative. And mm. so that's the way I've been going ever since. Mm. So I innovate mm. in the practice when I yeah. teach. Would you, I kind of recognize a question there somewhere around the, you know, the benefits and drawbacks of repetition. Can you speak to that at all? I mean, obviously, you somewhat, somewhat used repetition and enjoyed the idea that you had these set sequences originally that gave you a sense of autonomy, right? Um, and then obviously, there's drawbacks as well, that you kind of rigidity and dogmatism and, and kind of a closing down on perspective, potentially. Um, well, yeah. 
Yeah. Right. Well, also repetitive stress is a, a, right. a big issue in your in in the sequences of Ashtanga yoga, especially when people started adding in all the vinyasas and coming to standing between uh, poses. That wasn't the way it was taught in the beginning. It was it was looser and uh, less rigid, and um, you know, less and, and people were less vinyasas. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Well, there's vinyasas between. You know, you did the first five sitting poses, and then you did a vinyasa. Then you did right. the next two poses, and there was a vinyasa between each one, but not between sides. You didn't come to standing, right. and then John Shirshasana, you would do all three, and then a vinyasa, and Murchasana, you do all four of Murchasanas, and then there would be a vinyasa. So it was, you know, less intense. Um, so. Uh, that's the way I teach. I still teach like that. I, to, repetitive stress is, you know, something that happens in all physical activities if you're constantly repeating things. So uh, I recognize that the practice has to be modified every day according to how you feel. Some days I don't do vinyasa. Some days I do long holds, you know, and it turns into what people call yin yoga. So, um, it just depends on uh, how I'm feeling each day. Some days I do the primary or second series uh, or elements of the third series still the way it was uh, originally taught. So I vary it every day. Yeah. Why do you think it was, uh, when and why do you think it started to become more and more athletic, let's say? Well, you know, it is an athletic practice. I, I think that's what... And it's a very powerful teaching, as you recognize from your own practice. Um, you know, it's something completely unique that uh, was a synthesis of many different ideas that Krishnamacharya came across. You know, he was the real evolutionary teacher and uh, made an evolutionary leap in the way the practices were uh, put together and also uh all the elements he added with the breath and the internal locks and the idea of building heat before Krishnamacharya, most Hatha yoga, as it came into the West, you know, uh, people would do a pose and then lie down. And then after a couple of minutes or, or a period of time, they'd get up and do another pose and lie down. <laughs> so it was a much simpler practice, but I have to say, I, I still do that sometimes, <laughs> but regardless, uh, you know, the main thing is uh, it, it is this amazing physical practice, and but it has, you know, it has all these other elements. It's 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 ultimately yoga is soul work, and it's uh, it's about connecting with your soul and fulfilling personal destiny. And um, you know, it, it it is the science of flexibility and the science of strength and the science of balance, but it's also the science of breath the science of meditation, the science of happiness, the science of aging. Um, it's the science of uh, understanding the processes of transition. And it's always been a devotional science. You know, Krishnamacharya and the teachers before him and after in, in India were uh, deeply spiritual. They, they were trying to connect with the spirit at all times. And they used these practices as one element you know, a short period of time during the day when you did a physical practice that mm. helped you age with vitality and energy and clarity. Um, do, it do wasn't you, the whole thing. Yeah. 
Do you feel that message was there more in the early days with Batari Joyce and, and coming through the early teachers that you got the teachings of Dan, of, of David and, and Nancy, for example, that it became, you know, well, it does seem to have become more, more and more kind of intense as a, you know, kind of a dynamic discipline, right? From the way that you say, or David Williams teaches. Well, uh, I think people can do it, of course, any way they want, you know, it's right. a, it's people can innovate in their own practice, which mm. is, I think, important. And if they want, you know, and, uh, but also at the time when we were learning, I, Cliff was around and uh, he was always saying, you know, it's not just a physical practice. This is something very, very deep. It's about connecting with your soul and connecting with the spirit and using all the the, the scriptural knowledge to understand the the depth of, of the practices and the teachings and to go beyond the physical and recognize that the physical is just a, a, a small portion of the day, but it really covers you. And, and um, it's also the science of healing, you know, one of, one of the things I didn't, didn't mention a moment ago. So, you know, it has these aspects. And as you practice, you realize that your immune system is being boosted and your intuition and insight and uh, clarity, um, you know, it has all these other elements. And also, uh, you know, meditation was uh, understood uh, as part of the practice. And gradually, we learned pranayama, which is a meditative practice, and that's just a focus on breath. So, um, you know, it was, uh, I, I, to me, the, th- the thing about yoga that people seem to forget is that it's a... Um, um, it's, it, it's recommended practices. It's, it's not fixed. Mm. They're just suggestions, but they're very informed suggestions. So people get a little too dogmatic about how this information is passed on. They're just suggestions. So if you look at it like that, it frees you and it gives you uh, a, a wider um, viewpoint on the whole uh, integration of the practices. Krishnamacharya changed everything. Mm. Uh, he was an innovator. Um, so was, was, that, was that's it looser? You mentioned to... with, but yeah, with Batabi Joyce, was it looser at the start as well? You mentioned it was some less rigid when when you were originally taught. And do you find it? Well, um, he he was he was teaching the sequences, and he uh-huh. you know he didn't he didn't he didn't vary the sequences, but also he didn't stop anybody like uh happens now you mm. know you you could learn you could learn uh, you would learn and david and nancy were the same eventually you know once you did the practice once you started building your strength they would pass on more of the practice uh but when you retired they would suggest that you stopped or if you wanted to stop that was absolutely fine uh, uh Patavi joyce i think was the same you know he there was no break between primary and second series you you just carried on if you had the energy once you knew primary series and practiced it for a while then you could you know then you were you started adding on second series and um and later once you'd done primary and second series for a month or so then you would divide them you know do primary one day and second the next and so on yeah, and uh, I mean, basically, we learned as much as we could handle each day. And, um, you know, it takes years to, pr- to 
to really be able to do everything properly and and get deeper into it and gain the flexibility but uh you know it all happens quickly obviously if you're uh regular at the practice and fortunately you know i was learning initially in hawaii and we could swim afterwards and we were eating right. organic food and people weren't working regular jobs uh you know running it happy yeah. to run off to work it was uh much yeah. looser so uh um it just it happened quickly for everybody basically huh. That's, but the, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, there's a different time, a different age group generally. I think you're already young, right? Most um, of us, yeah. But even, you know, Cliff was uh, 43, 44 when he started. But he was doing uh, the primary, intermediate, uh, advanced A and B by the time he was 48, 49. Right. Hmm. And, you know, they would teach for six months and then leave. And so then, but after six months of practice, everybody was disciplined and and you know had the the will to carry on so when they came back the following year then then they could pass on the next sequence well i didn't know they were leaving and, as well where, where were they where were Dan, david and uh, nancy going at that time excuse me they were going to uh, india to carry on with uh Batavi joyce right so that was the years that they were going over, there mm. Yeah, remember for a couple of more years, and the third year they came back. Most people in the group started learning the third series. You know, it was very fast for, but it was it was mostly people in their twenties. But there were people in their thirties, forties, fifties, and sixties also. Wow, who else? I mean, you know, again, who else was around then? I'm going to have to ask you because other people like well, to Kathy know. Cooper and and yeah. Helena Berg. They were the first women, apart from Nancy, that learned the advanced sequences and Jan Hossey. Um, yeah, there was uh, John Pollock for, who's still on Maui, who was a, initially a student of Cliffs and learned the sequences a guy named Gary Juden. Yeah. People that aren't super, you know, they're not necessarily yeah, well known. Yeah. David Swenson, David Swenson was showing. He's kind of well known. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, David came to teach for them when they were gone. Um, yeah. So, uh, and wasn't he very young at the time when he when he when he covered for David Nancy? He was kind of like eighteen or, or younger, even. He might have been six, sixteen or seventeen. Yeah, I thought he was sixteen. Actually, yeah, I was just being concerned. Yeah, he might, that's yeah. crazy. But a lovely, yeah. lovely guy, right? You know, uh, you know, everybody loved him, and uh, he was, as you may know, you know, he taught. And nobody gave him any money, and uh, yeah. he had to work another. He had to work in the health food store, you know, to cover his expenses. But he taught for free because people didn't have money. So, yeah. um, what? I think David and Doug talk a lot about the, you know, kind of like you're living off of raw foods and and a few nuts and fruits, right? What what was you what were you eating back then? What what were the diets of the everyone like? Well. Uh, well, everybody was vegetarian. Uh, mm. I, we had we started having dinners together, a group of us, and with David and Nancy, and we'd have great vegetarian food. You know, very pure, very clean. Um, it was kind of the beginning of uh, organic agriculture in the West. Um, uh, the hippies were kind of reintroducing it into the culture, and. Uh, so and people were seeking clean food, you know, clean, healthy food. And they were trying to live in clean environments and, um, you know, yeah. out of the pollution, like I said earlier. So uh, 
yeah, that really helped, you know, because that is the yogic diet, you know, very sattvic, pure, clean, fresh, fresh fruits and yeah. vegetables. Hawaii is uh, amazing for its its fruits and vegetables, its right. fresh fruits, avocados, everything. Everything grows in Hawaii. So yeah. it grows well. Um, yeah. But, you know, one thing I wanted to mention sure. uh, just about this idea of innovation is uh, – mm -hmm. You've you you've interviewed I know Andrew Epler who was uh, yeah I met, I met when he was seventeen he'd studied with Cliff Cliff brought him to meet me and um, he he started doing yoga with me I taught him the advanced sequences but uh, he was you know very dedicated right from the beginning but you've seen his film uh, my sort traditions the, yeah my sort yeah, traditions yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, at the end of the film, he asks all these scholars, well, what, what's your message for the world? You know, what's your, can you give a, a short burst? And so um, if, if you remember, half the teachers say you learn the practices, you learn the teachings, and you teach them exactly as they're taught to you. Mm. And then the other half said, you learn the practices, you learn the teachings, and innovate. So that. You know, that is exactly where it's at. And it's, it's like music, you know, some people can innovate and that's great. And some people can only do what they're taught. And, uh, and that's beautiful also because they're, they're passing on um, something that is very important. It's been developed and created by, you know, in an evolutionary stream also, but some people are very good at innovating. And I think, you know, I, I respect both. I think it's great when people can just teach the, the sequences. And, and as, as for other people who can innovate in their practices and teaching, some of them are just unbelievable. So, um, you know, that's, that's what it's about. Yoga is in a process of evolution. It's not fixed. Mm. And I think, you know, Krishnamacharya demonstrated that 100 years ago or 90 years ago when he started uh, opened the first school, public school at the Mysore Palace. And otherwise, uh, I think it's just important to recognize he was an amazing innovator. He, he taught individuals and developed personal practices for people. And uh, sometimes even a, a strict Ashtanga teacher gets a student that cannot do the practice and they have to figure out how to teach them yoga in a modified way. So, uh, you know, I think it's very important to recognize that uh, it's it's open to interpretation. Like I, mm. I said, as we were being cut off, it's they're just suggestions, but they're informed suggestions from thousands of years of devotional uh, understanding and people who were trying to understand the human soul mm. and mm. how to and how to connect to the spirit through meditation and, uh, and, and also understanding that yoga to me and uh, as far as I've understood is a shamanic practice. It relates to even all indigenous teachings all over the world. You know, they're all saying the same thing. They're all trying to tell people how to connect to the spirit, how to pray, how to use breath and um, meditation and how to, connect with nature you know yoga is a nature-based teaching it comes from nature if you look deep into the origins of yoga it, it comes from meditative communication with nature as far as i'm concerned in shamanic ceremonies 
that's where the ideas were transferred to the human race. And, you know, it's through the genius of the human mind receiving this information that they created the practices of yoga. That's how I see it. These are, mm. you know, my views. How, but, uh, how were the sequences... Yes. Um... How was how were the sequences presented to you originally? Then I mean, was there the idea that Patavi Joyce said that you know I created these, or did he say learn them from Krishnamacharya, or you know what what was the original kind of um, um, understanding? No, no, in your time? no, nobody nobody said anything about that. It was just right, they were right. there, you they know. Just there. Uh, but I, okay, we'll do. Yeah, <laughs> they were just what he was he yeah. was teaching and what yeah, David yeah, yeah. was teaching, you know, and, uh-huh, and what he uh-huh. learned. But yeah, the fact yeah, was yeah. that they were. If you did them, you recognize they were super uh, fast techniques for opening the body and the mind and for creating flexibility and strength and balance and um, and all the effects that came from breath and the meditation behind the practices. So, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, there was no, it wasn't defined where it came from, but I think it became, it has become clear over the years that it was Krishnamacharya who, who put the sequences together for, for Batavi Joyce. I don't think he created them. I think they were passed. Most of the elements of the practice were passed down to him from Krishnamacharya, who was the real genius behind this whole movement that's led to so many millions of people, tens of millions of people coming into the practices, not only through Ashtanga Yoga, but through, uh, flow yoga and vinyasa yoga and jiva mukti yoga and all these other techniques that developed mm. out of ashtanga yoga mm. but let me just add one thing that if you don't mind uh Not so. you know i went i went to egypt in uh, 1986 87 and i was with some egyptian friends going through the temple of karnak who informed me that nobody really knows the age of the Temple of Karnak. could be anywhere from 7,000 years old to, they were saying 70,000 years old. Nobody knows. It can't be pinned down. But it's certainly the old, the oldest, the Temple of Karnak and the Temple of Luxor are the oldest temples on earth. And the most, uh, the largest and the, some of the most creative uh, endeavors ever made on earth. And there are yoga positions carved into the hieroglyphs, um, spinal twists, shoulder stands, um, all kinds of uh, classical yoga positions. So yoga predates India. Not a lot of research has been done on that, but uh, it became clear to me that the origin of yoga, the first evidence of yoga is in the temples of Egypt and in the hieroglyphs. India was where yoga was refined. And, you know, you know, created as a, as a practice for the human race. But the origins are much older. So that's how I see it. Mm. These are just my views. <laughs> we have to be clear. The origins of asana, the origins of yoga asana, right? I think. The origins yeah. of asana, yeah. also yeah. breath, meditation. Yeah. You know, they all come from, uh, as well, from shamanic practices practiced all over the earth. You know, if you mm. hang out with mm. the, Ma- the Mayans, in Central America, they they say they invented yoga. They have <laughs> yoga practices. And uh, I don't know if you've heard this before, but the Mayans say Kundalini is a Mayan word. They call it Kusalini. And it's a 100,000-year-old knowledge that they carry, they say. And the 
definition or is the same as in Central Asia. Um, it's the, uh, the the rising of the energy of the of the great spirit messenger through the human form. They called it Quetzalcoatl, the, the spirit messenger. Um, mm. So it, it, the definition is the same uh, mm. in in Mayan yoga. So mm. you know, and I, I've spent time with some people in Central America, and and they they say that the Mayans claim they invented yoga. So who knows? It may have been teachings that arose simultaneously all over the world at similar times. Thank you.